Acts chapter 1 this morning. Continuing on with the early church, we'll see the church together in one accord. We're going to see the replacing of Judas Iscariot with a 12th disciple, going to be an apostle. And then we're going to see a note about the suicide of Judas. And so there's a lot to cover here this morning and important things to be said. Let's stand to honor the Lord this morning as we read his word from Acts chapter 1. Verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and were, and where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18, a parenthesis. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadoma, that is, a field of blood. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, verses 12 through 14 speaks about the church together with one accord. The church together with one accord. They have come back from the Mount of Olives, about a two-mile walk. It says a Sabbath day walk. That's a, uh, a limitation on travel that the Jews had put on the Sabbath so people wouldn't travel too far and uh, not keep the Sabbath. So they weren't a far way away. And they had come home uh, with the command of Christ to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they are together here in one room together in one accord. And it, it outlines who is in this early church. As we're going to see in verse 15, it's only 120 people. That is less, significantly less than what is in this room right now. And that's important, that the early church, the beginning of the church, started with less than what we have here this morning. That matters. 
It's now millions and millions of people throughout the world and millions more before that that have come between us and the time of Christ. But it began in a humble and small way in a room waiting for the Lord to send his spirit. The first that are mentioned here is the listing off of the 11 remaining apostles, those that were specifically chosen by Jesus Christ to fill the apostolic role of being with him through his ministry, to hear his teaching, to see the miracles that he performed, and then to go and bear witness to his resurrection and to his salvation. And 11 of the 12 are still there. As we see in this passage, we're reminded of Judas and his betrayal and his going out, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But three years of following and watching and learning about Jesus, they are going to be the primary witnesses of the message and the work of Jesus Christ. They have been commanded by Jesus before his ascension to go out and to make disciples and to baptize those that believe in his name as they go. But they need a complete 12. There's something missing about the number of 11, and that's because there's 12 tribes in Israel. And one of the statements, there's many statements that Jesus makes that speaks to the need of there being 12 apostles. But one of those is Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you in the new world, which is speaking of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They sense an incompleteness with Judas gone, and there's going to be a replacing of him in this passage. But before we get there, it goes on to others that are with them. It specifically points out uh, the women that are with them. The word used there can be also translated wives, which is we know part of the, uh, of the apostles and Peter himself and others were married. So there's always, the, the scriptures are always speaking of the important place of women in the church in the discipleship and role, especially in the, um, the account of the resurrection and the cross. There's a prominent place of mentioning the courage and godliness of the women that were with Jesus and remained with him. And they are here now in this place as they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And there is the last mention of a very important character in the Bible, which is Mary, the mother of Jesus. It specifically says here in verse uh, 14, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is present here. And I want to stop and take a moment to, because this is the last mention of Mary in the scriptures. She is a model of faith and submission to God's will in the scriptures. Her journey is fascinating, and it's worth thinking back to the first time in which the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, Hail, favored one of the Lord, for the righteous life that she had lived. She was chosen of the Lord to bear Jesus, the Son of God. But the life before her was a life of faith and submission to God's will, because she had no idea that any of this was going to unfold the way that it did. And when you look down the path of of raising Jesus, and as we're going to see here, there's at least six other children that she and Joseph had. And they raised Jesus as a basically normal child, but waiting, always waiting for like, when is this going to break out? And what is going to happen? Because we know that Jesus is not only special, but divine. And we're not clear what is going to happen because she's not told. 
And when his ministry begins, the ministry is not what anyone expected. They expected a, a political up, upheaval. They expected Israel to be brought back into power, and it's shaped in a, just a very different way. But she is always present, always around the edges, supporting and being a part of what is happening, all the way up to watching her son crucified and die on the cross. Shamefully, uh, before false accusers, and there with John, watching him die. And it's incomprehensible. Like, how, what is this? How could this be the end of all these things? But then she's there for the resurrection, and now she's here at the early church, waiting for the Holy Spirit to be sent. And as long as the Lord gives her breath, she's going to be a part of what the Lord is doing in the world. And she is a fascinating person. But I want to say very carefully that she is not divine, and she is not to be worshipped, and she's not to be prayed to. There's a strong tradition in the world that's been brought to us by the Roman Catholic Church that tells us we ought to pray to Mary. We ought to almost worship Mary. You see none of that in the scriptures. She's just a part of the church. She had a special and particular role, and she was a godly woman to be emulated for many of the aspects of her life, but she is not to be worshipped or prayed to. The other group of people here specifically mentioned are the brothers of Jesus, which is interesting. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we're given the name of four of the brothers of Jesus, the earthly brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. They, didn't, they weren't always in this place, and that's important to know. When Jesus first began his ministry in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, after Jesus had uh, called the 12 apostles, the disciples at that point in time, to himself and was going and preaching and teaching, and there were massive crowds, these same brothers came to him in these crowds saying, he has lost his mind. Jesus is going crazy. Like somebody stop him and bring him back home. He is embarrassing all of us because we know this guy. We grew up with him, and he's not who he says that he is. But somewhere along the line, they went full circle and began to hear and see who Jesus was. Because it's interesting to think about growing up with Jesus as a brother, as an older brother. Um, that's going to be a, an impossible act to follow. And, but at the same time, Jesus full of grace and truth and kindness. He would have been the best big brother that there ever was. And so there's no way that they could look back and say, yeah, this is hypocritical. Jesus was never this way before. He was always that way before. They just didn't see who he was because he, it was not his time. It was not the fullness of time for him to reveal who he was. And so eventually, they believed in him. They saw his works, they heard his words, and they believed in him. And they are mentioned specifically here as a part of the early church. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we're going to see that James, his oldest brother, is going to become the leader of the persecuted Jerusalem church and is going to play an important part, a central part in early church history. So they were wrong at first, the brothers of Jesus. But they were willing to hear and to see and to be persuaded by what Jesus said. And it's impossible for me to think that there isn't someone here this morning that grew up in a, in a Christian environment, grew up hearing the things of the Lord, but has hardened their heart against those things, that you're unwilling to hear what was said. And I want you to see a little bit of, of who the brothers of Jesus were, and that over the course of their lives, over the course of the ministry of Jesus, over the course of hearing and seeing what Jesus did, they were willing to hear these things. They were willing to open their hearts 
hearts, and they believed in these things. And I encourage you this morning, if you have a hard heart, a heritage of pressing these things off, that you would see an example here in Scripture of change, of radical, full change, going from disbelief to strong belief and to those who are central in the work of the Lord. So this 120 people that are together here waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, it says are together, as it says in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord. That's a beautiful phrase that speaks to unity. Unity in the church. They have just come off from the Mount of Ascension and the the news of the resurrection and these various appearances of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And the church is super focused on Jesus. And when the church is super focused on Jesus, we have great unity in the church. It's when we take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to look at our own factions and our own issues and defending ourselves against things that we think are important that we begin to divide amongst ourselves. And always the way in which we have unity and great joy in the church is to look to Christ and to see what he is doing in the world. And when we have our hearts and eyes focused upon Jesus, we will love each other for Jesus' sake because he called for us to. When we have our focus upon Jesus, we will forgive each other for Jesus' sake because he's called us to. We will serve each other for Jesus' sake because he's called us to. And we will want to do what Jesus has called us to do when our heart is set upon Jesus and it tends toward unity and oneness in the church. I, in in prayer, so they're devoting themselves to prayer, specifically here seeking the Holy Spirit. But it is easy to pray for another brother or sister in Christ when your heart is not on yourself, but your heart is on the Lord. You'll find that the needs of other people in the church come to your heart often, and you want to pray for other people because you are thinking about them, and you care about them, and you're concerned about them. And there's no way that you have a heart of concern for other people in the church, and you pray for them, and you don't want to reach out and talk to them or hear what's going on. It it all tends to bring us together as one in the church. And so this is one of the beautiful parts of the early church. It's inescapable. As we go, especially through the next three or four chapters, we're going to see this beauty of oneness, togetherness, joint relationship, sharing meals together, all these types of things coming up over and over in the early church. And it's something that we ought to continue to be striving for in our day and age. We must love each other in Christ. We are here together in this local community as Christians, as those who follow Christ. And we must strive to know each other, to be involved with each other's lives, to love each other, to pray for each other, to forgive each other, to serve each other, that it might be said of us here at Redeemer Bible Church that we live together in one accord that we bind ourselves together, that there is a sense of unity, a sense of fellowship, a sense of forgiveness and love that is palpable in this place. And so they are enjoying this earnest fellowship. And that's a part of what ought to happen here as well, that we enjoy each other in this place. We enjoy each other's company. We enjoy each other's friendship. And we are glad to be together in this place. Such nearness to Jesus and unity together should be the goal of every church. Well, in this prayerful gathering, one of the issues that comes up is a a necessary in-house issue. We're missing an apostle. We need a 12th person to serve. 
And so Peter, who is now leading, and let us remember that he is one who had so passionately uh, sworn off knowing the Lord Jesus, but has been restored at this point in time after John chapter 21, where Jesus sits him down and asks him over and over, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he is forgiven of his sins. He is restored and brought back into the fellowship of the apostles, and they welcome him back into that place. And he begins here to take, again, the place of leadership in the church And he speaks about how in the scriptures, what Judas had done was spoken of and that it has been fulfilled that he was put out and that another ought to take his office. Now, the two scriptures that are referred to here are Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, 8. So let me read a little bit from both of these. These are both Psalms of David and these are both Psalms where David is speaking about his enemies and asking for God to bring down judgment upon those enemies. And this is in the context of David speaking this, but it has reference to and then fulfillment in the life of Judas. So if we look at Psalm 69, beginning in verse 22, speaking about the wicked, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Verse 25 being what Peter quotes. And then going over to Psalm 109, 8, uh, beginning in verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand when he is tried. Let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as a sin. May his days be few. May another take his office, which is quoted by Peter. So there is both application and fulfillment in these. You can take these verses and apply them to the life of Judas, and they make sense because they are speaking about a wicked person and the Lord bringing some form of judgment against a wicked person. But Peter is saying that these verses are more than just application. They are fulfillment, that these references find their completion in Judas. So similar to what David was dealing with in his life with duplicitous uh, people coming and undermining him and working against him, and he is asking God to bring judgment on them. The greatest uh, deceiver of all, the greatest betrayer of all is Judas himself, and his place is to be removed and another is to take his office. And so bringing these scriptures to bear with Judas, he calls that another might come in and take his place. But I think it's important to stop here for a moment and see what is happening because it has tremendous application to every church. We should not take lightly that after three years of working and serving together that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and them all and went out. And in his betrayal of them and the church in malice, his betrayal as an instrument of Satan, he put them all in bodily physical danger. There's a reason why they fled and left Jesus at his trial because they were all afraid that they might themselves be jailed and crucified. This was no small matter that Judas betrayed them. 
But the reality of unbelieving, hard-hearted, self-serving people working their way into the church and finding a place there and then going out from it and as they go out, causing all kinds of issues and struggles is a part of every local church. It happens on a regular basis. And when people like this blow out of the church, it causes doubt in the church. It causes fear sometimes in the church, divisions, distractions, and most especially when it's a key leader. We tend to not think about Judas as a key leader in the church, but he was. He was one of the 12. He was one of the chosen ones that was supposed to carry on the witness of Jesus. We know him in a very different way now after the fact, but that was not the case at the time. It had to have raised all kinds of questions and doubts and struggles in the minds of the people that were following after Jesus. How is it that Jesus could have chosen one who was a deceiver and a liar? We see now on the backside of it how many things are radically important about what is accomplished through Judas and the purposes of God in it, but we only get that in retrospect. And when we have unbelievers and sinners come in and work their way into the place of the church and then blow out and cause all kinds of problems, we often do not see the purpose in those things in the time. It just becomes very difficult. So this is not a new thing in the church. It's something that is a part of the church from early on, and in this case, particularly by the design of the Lord Jesus. These betrayals and false people re uh, revealed in the church will not stop the purposes of Jesus. I want you to see that here, and I want you to remember that as we go forward in the life of the church. It was the express desire of Satan that Judas would be able to derail and stop the purposes of Christ, and that what he was doing would not come to pass through the work of Judas. But as Judas does exactly what he is striving to do, the Lord uses it to actually accomplish his purposes. The purposes of the Lord in the church will never stop. The local church is God's plan for reaching the nations, and it will exist forever until Jesus returns again. And though we may be buffeted by all kinds of difficult things with people in the church that sow dissension and sinfulness, we will not stop bearing witness to Jesus. And what will happen is that the Lord will raise up new people and there will be renewal within the church, which is what's happening in this passage. There's renewal. There's a backfilling of the next faithful person coming and taking the seat that the church might continue on. Let another take his office that the church might be renewed. And I think it's worth thinking back, because as I was thinking about the renewal of the church and them saying, we've got to look back at the beginning. We've got to take someone from the beginning that's seen from the baptism of John all the way to where we are now. If you know the history of this church, this coming Saturday, the 19th, will be the four-year anniversary of this church. Four years ago, in six days, we first met in Nye River Middle School. And there are some of you here that were here from the very beginning. And uh, there's many people still in this church that were here from the very beginning. And it's a joyful thing to think about the road that we've walked together. And all it's a lot has happened. It seems like a different lifetime almost. Back. How much has happened between then and now? But I am greatly thankful for the people that have been here the whole time. And uh, I'm grateful for you. And so they're in this same mindset of thinking back to the beginning.
And from this, a person, a man, must be chosen as a spiritual leader, as an apostle in the church. And so the first unfortunate guy can't decide what his name is. He has three names. He has, he's Justice, he's Barsabbas, he's Joseph. Maybe that's why they didn't choose him, because they couldn't figure out what to call the guy. But the other guy's name is Matthias. Both clearly godly men chosen from a group of even more. Apparently there are more people here and they have to first go out and decide, like neck this thing down as to what makes sense. And these two godly faithful men that have been with them from the beginning uh, enter in and uh, they make a choice. And this is, there's a lot about decision making in the scriptures and I thought it'd be worth saying just a little bit about this. There's the revealed will of God and there's the concealed will of God. The revealed will of God is clear things that Jesus tells us to go do. He just clearly told them, I want you to go and make disciples, bear witness to my resurrection, and baptize those in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that believe. He just said that it, it, it's the revealed will of God. But he didn't tell them exactly who should fill Judas's spot. He didn't. So it's a concealed matter. We have many things in our life that the scriptures are very clear that we ought to do. But then we also have many things that the Lord has left unclear. So we have to do certain things. Here, they gather all the available options, which we should do as well. They should pray and specifically ask for the Lord to guide them. And they specifically ask here, Lord, you know all the hearts. Verse 24, show which one of these you have chosen. And then we trust God and we act. In this case, they, are, they use the choosing of lots, which is very interesting. It's an Old Testament practice. This is the last time in the Bible that we see lots being used for choosing, and I'll get to that in a moment. But it is important that Acts, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 is very clear that the, the lot is cast, but the decision lies with the Lord. And so they are using this as a method to very specifically ask God to choose the person. So we don't mess this up because this is very, very important. So they do this with an Old Testament precedent and Matthias is chosen and he becomes numbered with the eleven. Moving forward in the New Testament and why we don't use the casting of lots anymore is because the Holy Spirit is given soon after this. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of God's Spirit in our soul, who is a counselor and a guide and a teacher to us. And we don't have the need to cast lots anymore. Instead, we go directly to the throne of grace and take our struggles and our questions to the Lord. And with the, the guidance of the Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will be able to discern what the will of the Lord is. And that's a, a longer sermon for another day, but there's some, some basic things about that. So Matthias is chosen. I think it's important and worth saying that uh, justice is not chosen. What do you think he did? Do you think he just you know, he didn't win the campaign, so he angry and stormed out of the church and never saw those people again because he couldn't lead in the place that, that was the place of honor? I don't believe that at all. He was a godly man, and so he went right back to serving in the humble place where he was unknown. His name is never mentioned again. But he went right back to serving the Lord in whatever way the Lord would have him to serve. And this is the nature of service in the church. 
If you badly want your name to be mentioned somewhere so that people know who you are, you're probably not the person for godly leadership in the church. The the place of leadership in the church is a place of humility. Jesus was a servant leader down washing feet, and he said very clearly at that occasion, you will not rise above me, your master. And if you want to be a a leader, you're going to be a servant leader. And so they all serve as they are called upon by the Lord to serve. And so there's a bit about the replacing of Judas with Matthias. But before we Before I wrap up here this morning, we have to talk about verses 18 and 19, which is this parenthetical notation about the suicide of Judas. This is a very powerful passage. Uh, There is a counterpart passage to this, which is Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10, where Matthew also speaks about the suicide of Judas. And there is some reconciliation between the two that needs to happen because they're slightly different in their accounts, but uh, are reconciled together. This all begins with Judas coming to the realization somewhere in the trial of Jesus, the quote from Matthew is that I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. At some point, it comes crashing down on him like a ton of bricks that he has done something irreversibly horrible. And that Jesus is not the the problem here. He is the problem. That he has betrayed Jesus and Jesus is innocent. And the, the course of events that he has set in motion, he cannot stop and undo. And I feel like there's probably many people in this room, because anybody with much age on them has done something in your life, whether it's sin or a bad decision or an injury or a break in relationship where that moment dawns on you. It's a a really a terrifying moment where you realize that what has happened is terrible and it cannot be undone. And you cannot go back. You can't roll back the time to, to do again what you so wish you could do differently. And it's a part of many, many people's lives. But what we do about that and how we react to that will, will determine the rest of your life. And for Judas, when he realized something horrible wrong that he had done and that he could not reverse the course of events, his reaction to it is a reaction of death. What happens is the priests go out with this silver and they buy a field apparently in his name and it becomes known as a field of blood. It's a, it's a, it's a field bought with blood money for the burial of the poor. And Judas at some point goes there and kills himself. Either by hanging, it says in one place, but we have this, you know, his entrails spilling out. Either maybe he he fell and impaled himself, and that was a version of hanging, or by hanging, he decayed until he burst open. All of it's terrible. He killed himself, and it it was a gruesome, infamous death recorded for all to see and tell into our day. We cannot turn a blind eye to the reality of suicide. In 2022, statistics tell us that the uh, suicide rates in the United States of America were the highest they've ever been in recorded history, which is sobering, especially in ages 10 through 24. The young people of our time, suicide is the second leading cause of death in this country. That is shocking. That is young people coming to a place of sin, of bad decisions, of relational brokenness, whatever it may be, that they feel like they are in an irreversible place and they see no hope for the future in a similar way to Judas. 
And the way that they choose to deal with it is to go and end their own lives. At the root of these things, it is a hopelessness related to a rejection of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Judas was in a particular place of knowing exactly who Jesus was. But we must go out and tell the good news of the gospel of Christ to those who are truly in hopelessness. And I want to read a verse. This will be our final verse here this morning before we go to the Lord's Supper. And I encourage you to to turn there with me and to mark this verse because it is very important. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. I'll read it for us this morning. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Paul talks about two types of sorrow. A sorrow that leads to repentance, which then leads to life, versus a sorrow that leads to death. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We understand this. You understand this. There's a grief where you turn away from the hope of Christ and it leads to death. It just leads to further and further and further darkness in your life. And you hopefully understand the grace of Jesus that is offered to you, but you're rejecting it and you're going further and further and further into yourself and it leads to death. It leads ultimately to eternal death if you reject the grace of Jesus. But the grace of Jesus Christ is always extended to us. And when we are grieved in such a way that we see that our own sin is what has brought us to this place and we are willing to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, that godly sorrow leads to life. It leads to salvation. It leads to a whole new day and where a person can pass from death unto life. That though you have made some terrible decision, you can, it can be undone. There is life in Christ. Though you have sinned in some horrible way that you know how horrible it is, you can be forgiven of your sin. There is no sin that the Lord Jesus will not forgive. His mercy is unending. If you know of someone like this or you yourself are hurting in this way, I want you to know this morning that God loves you. And he cares for you. His mercy is extended towards you that you might not remain in such a terrible place. And will you call out to him? Will you repent of your sins and, excuse me, believe in him? For he is willing to forgive your sins and give you life. He can raise you up out of the deepest and the darkest pit. And he absolutely is in the business of making a way where there seems to be no way. Every Christian in this room can tell you a story of there being no way, them reaching a dead end that they could not figure out any way out of it by themselves and the Lord makes a way. A way that is different than what they thought but leads unto life. This is what it means to be a Christian and to follow after the merciful Christ our Lord. The only irreversible decision is death. And so when you hear the enemy whispering in your heart to turn away from this life and to end your life, perhaps, hear and understand that this is not the voice of the Lord. This is the voice of the enemy who is seeking to destroy your life before you can come to Christ. Jesus has risen from the dead. There is life in his name. There is hope and joy in the fellowship of the church. Open your heart. Give over your grief to the Lord and come to Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for a little window into the picture of the oneness and joy of the church, the renewal of the church when those in sin go out, and then a picture of the sadness of the suicide of Judas. I pray, God, that you would preserve us as a church, that you would give us unity, that we would love each other earnestly from the heart for Jesus' sake, that we would always forgive each other struggles between ourselves, that the church would be renewed year after year after year, that the world might see the salvation of Jesus. And I pray for all those in despair this morning, that they would turn their eyes towards heaven, that they would see and know the mercy of Christ, that they would ask for forgiveness, be forgiven, and have new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.